2022 marks 40 years since the release of Madonna's first single. To commemorate this, Warners will be revisiting her back catalogue with selections curated by Madonna herself. For this series of Inside the Groove, I'm joined by industry experts, also Madonna fans, as we work through the singer's albums one by one, episode by episode, to discuss how they were created, what they achieved, and what we can expect from the upcoming re-releases. True Blue was released on 30th of June 1986. The third studio album by Madonna would turn her from being a pop starlet into an international megastar, seemingly at the peak of her career with a collection of flawless pop and rock songs which have stood the test of time. As of 2012, it has sold 25 million copies to date, making it her highest selling studio album. And not surprisingly, it has reached number one in pretty much every territory where it was released. And in those few countries where it wasn't number one, well, it was number two. Five of the nine tracks were released as singles, most of which reached the number one spot in the UK and the US, proving that she was now at the true imperial phase of her career, even at the point where she had yet to tour outside of North America. This is Madonna's first album as a producer, a fact often underplayed by her detractors, but her collaboration with long-term songwriter partner Stephen Bray and a new relationship with Patrick Leonard would see Madonna at her most creative so far. The tunes that they created on this album and her looks in the videos would become truly iconic in the literal sense of the word. Of course, much of its success was due to the accompanying visual imagery of those videos and the incredible cover artwork, and we'll be talking about that breathtaking photo by Herb Ritz and finding out more about the graphic design of the album and the singles that followed. I'll be paying special attention to the opening track, Papa Don't Preach, a song off the shelf which Madonna would make her own and would once again court controversy. There's so much to discuss about True Blue, and whilst Madonna would possibly make even better albums in the future, it's no wonder that it's considered one of the greatest albums of all time, if not just the 1980s. Joined by music journalist and biographer Lucy O'Brien, fashion photographer Jonathan Daniel Price, and graphic designer Peter Falloon, we're going to give you the whole story behind Madonna's third studio album, and discuss what we might be able to look forward to in the upcoming reissue of this undeniable classic. So sit back, relax, I may be young at heart, but I know what I'm saying, as we go Inside the Groove. Edward Russell, the host of Inside the Groove, and I'd just like to remind you, I'm just a guy at home trying to make the best, most professional sounding podcast for your enjoyment and to spread the word about Madonna's achievements. So it's free, but if you want to offer a one-off donation or become a patron and get extra content and episodes in advance, it would be really appreciated. So just head over to www.insidethegroove.co.uk and choose the relevant option. Thank you. 
Now, there's no escaping the fact that True Blue is Madonna's biggest selling studio album and sort of signifies her first commercial peak. Now, we Madonna fans like to celebrate her longevity and the fact that she would go on to become so incredibly famous and respected. But it's important to remember that this really was her peak with the general public because not only did she have chart and critical success, but she really connected with the all-important teen market. Now, Madonna had started as a young pop dance singer back in 1983 and had proved that she could develop into a really rounded artist, but True Blue was the point at which she became a big star, as big as Michael Jackson and Prince, and a key player on the scene. As one half of the Poison Pens, as they were known, she and husband Sean had a bit of a reputation in some respects, but there's no doubting that it was her intention to rule the world, and this is the moment when she started to achieve that. Now, if you listen to the episode I did on Live to Tell, this details her first recordings with Patrick Leonard and her ability, really, to craft the perfect pop song. She'd been observing the skill for many years, but this is where she put it into place. In the episode on Open Your Heart, she took that a step further and threw herself into the production side of things and how she could take someone else's song and make it even better. And do check out the episode on Into the Groove, the song itself. It gives a really good insight into her work with Stephen Bray at the time. And although that was retroactively added to the Like a Virgin album, it's the first song to credit Madonna as a producer. And that, I think, is the thing that separates True Blue from her previous work. Now, I've got Lucy O'Brien here, author of the Madonna biography, Like an Icon. Lucy, as a woman in the music industry, you'll be very familiar with this concept because I think a lot of people didn't really believe that Madonna was actually a producer and that her name was simply on the album as some sort of contractual obligation. And I honestly think that many out there felt that as she was a woman, she couldn't really be a producer. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And it's taken a long time for people to really appreciate what co-production means and the contribution, particularly for female artists, there is this kind of, it's quite hard to get past that prejudice that if it's a female vocalist, she's just the decoration and she mm. just comes in and sings and that's it. I was very struck with um, you know, talking to Pat Leonard and Stephen Bray about True Blue. What's interesting about True Blue is by then, unlike Madonna, the debut, unlike Like a Virgin, by the time she gets to True Blue, she's really digging in um, and contributing to and thinking about arrangements, production, working very, very closely in a really collaborative way with the producers. And Pat Leonard and Steve Bray, that's a bit of a dream team. And it, it continues to mm -hmm. like a prayer as well. So I think she found with them a kind of symbiosis, a really good sort of songwriting rapport that was really fluid. So it went from Papa Don't Preach, where um, you know, I interviewed James Foley, who directed the video, and he said she was always really good at that glamorous working-class Catholic girl, you know, <laughs> turning up in her Italians Do It Better t-shirt. Um, so kind of capturing a sort of moment of kitchen sink drama to that real drama of Live to Tell, Mm. which is Pat Leonard with his really, really strong kind of resonant melody lines and, and her, the drama of her words as well. One thing about True Blue, and I don't know if Madonna anticipated this, but this was the the age of, the, I think they were called wannabes at the time, the Madonna lookalikes. And she suddenly was appealing to a very young audience. And that's probably the, this and Like a Virgin and True Blue is that period in her life where there were 
teenage girls that wanted to be her. That, I think, probably really surprised her. I don't think she was expecting that. I think she was pleasantly surprised by the fact that so many girls were into her, that she had this audience that were copying her look. And I think she knew instinctively that that was the route to real mainstream chart success you know it is the way you know the Beatles happened with the Beatles they started off with the teen girl audience and then they kind of graduated if you like to the more um older discerning or discerning that's an awful word to use (laughs) but yeah I mean um but I think part of the reason girls loved her was because she had a very girlish sort of ebullience right Mm -hmm. from the and she had this energy that kind of leapt out of the camera at you she was so distinctive right from the start and you can kind of see that on true blue you know you you look at the warhol inspired cover she Mm. was like pop art her music had become really center stage by then Mm. So coming up later in this episode i'm going to discuss what could go on a reissue of true blue the rare and the unreleased stuff and also i'm going to give you a bit of a background on papa don't preach but now i want to talk about the artwork i mean it's what stands out most about true blue for me that that incredible cover i'm joined by fashion photographer jonathan daniel price and graphic designer peter falloon and they've got the background on this cover artwork uh, i can't wait to share it with you jonathan is, is here at the moment holding the album cover looking backwards and forwards what can you tell us about it so this is got to be one of Madonna's most effective record covers and it's also one of her most famous. What's so incredible about it is it's a single image that just dominates the frame and what I love about it too is there's no other artwork that comes with this in the original LP or CD version. It is just this one frame by Herb Ritz, which you mentioned. So Herb Ritz is a fashion photographer and his most famous image probably other than this, because this is very well known, is the image of the 90s supermodels with Cindy Crawford and Naomi Campbell in Hollywood. It was actually taken in 1989. And he has this real understanding and appreciation of mid-century art, I guess, and photographers like Irving Penn, who have this real classic take on portraiture. And I think what is so brilliant here is the synergy with Madonna's references in this time period too. He'd shot Olivia Newton-John's cover of Physical in 1981, so a few years before this. And people I've heard referencing how this True Blue cover is sort of a take on Physical. I don't know how accurate that is in reality. I don't necessarily see it as that, actually. I see them as being quite different because Herbert is known for really appreciating the moment. So he said things like, it's all about the surprise in the moment of the magic of photography is the surprise in the moment. And I think you can see that in the contact sheets. When you look at the contact sheets from this shoot, there is a progression of her poses and it sort of naturally falls into this shot. I mean, Herberts has taken some of my favorite ever Madonna images. And what you really see in their connection, I think, is the level of trust. And and you do need that when you're taking celebrity portraits. I mean, you kind of need to be a diplomat and a psychologist and their friend and have great powers of persuasion, especially in this image, you know, taking it, looking at the time period. She is at her peak of fame. You know, she's just come off the back of some huge records and I can imagine the creative discussion. We don't even need her full face to sell this. We can see it's Madonna. You know, this is her in profile. It's just 
boom, her head in profile with her head flung back. And it's instantly captivating. I think you don't necessarily actually even need to know it's Madonna for it to catch your eye. And the job in those days of a cover was for it to catch your eye to sell the record. It is also interesting to note, I think, how she's moved away from what people may perceive as gimmicks. So the Like a Virgin record with the wedding dress and and the boy toy belt and all of these symbols which were synonymous with the Madonna wannabe craze. You know, she's moved into a new phase of her life and her music. And she still has the sex symbol, but it's more sophisticated. And, you know, it would have obviously been much easier for her to continue with this same look but to come out with such a drastic image change is shows quite a lot of strength and and it's quite brave you know it's gone from quite a wild and layered aesthetic to something quite neat it kind of reminds me of the kind of gamine style of audrey hertburn from the 1950s i think also this idea of madonna being perceived as rebellious particularly in a sexually overt way this is doing it in a much more subtle way so you know, the neck is still sexual, but it's not quite the bust. You know, it's it's a different way of portraying sexuality. And I mean, when I'm shooting, I have used this as reference so many times. I'll sometimes even say to the model, give me true blue just to see if they'll know the reference. And there's actually a shot in the last book that I released called Garson Style with a stylist, Mark Goring, and I tested him by doing it and he got it right away. And I used that in the book. I think what strikes me about this image so much is that simplicity is done so effectively. You know, it's it's almost heroic in its statuesque pose. And you can really also feel that it was shot in California. I think you get this sort of glossy effect. I always feel like when I'm shooting in LA, everything looks quite grand and expensive. Also, from what I've heard about this, it was shot on 35 millimeter, which surprised me when I found that out because the negative's quite small, which means blowing an image up to a larger size, there's quite a lot of grain or less detail. And if you look at this image, you can see the grain in the photo. Yeah. Herb Ritz often use natural light rather than using, you know, electronic lighting in his photos, do you know? From this series of images that he created, there's a set which it looks like natural light, of which this is, and then there's another set which looks like it's been lit in a studio. So, so I, he does have a mastery over both but i think he definitely preferred natural light as far as i can see so with this also there is the original image which is in the dimensions of course of a 35 millimeter frame so it's a longer image and in order to create a square image for the lp they obviously had to cut it down and what is interesting is it still works so well as a square frame you guys can obviously go into this if you know a little more but that i think a poster came with the album and it was the longer image and, and the cassette as well had more of it featured and just generally about this photo I think it's a real definition in her career. It's a real critical marker, which goes so perfectly with the music. So she's gone from this higher voice register, uh, sort of pop approach to music to now being taken more seriously as an artist and more of a mature sound. You know, if you think about when this was released, she had just released Live to Tell as a lead single of an album, so different to her other work. And and also thinking of that, a, a very different look in the music video that no one had seen of Madonna. And yeah, with that too, I think she was started to double down on these sort of 1950s Hollywood references in that video and then taking it much further into True Blue. Yeah, it's interesting because 
as I discussed earlier, the songs have, you know, many of the songs have a 50s feel. Jimmy Jimmy and True mm. Blue has got a 50s, 60s feel. But there's also sort of a more rock vibe as well, done in a pop way, but we've got more rock style vocals from Madonna in songs like Open Your Heart and White Heat. And that's really reflected in the image, isn't it? Because she's wearing a leather jacket. She mm. looks like she could be one of the one of the extras in Greece or something like that. Yeah, and that's really crossed my mind too with Greece. I, I was thinking of that too. I think, you know, the other images which aren't used on this cover, there's some shots where it's a lot more of a contrasted light and it's dark in the background and that looks a bit like the promotional shoot of Marilyn for Gentleman Prefers Blondes where she's got the gold dress. It's lit very high and it's similar angles of her face. And Madonna does have similar bone structure to Marilyn when it's lit in a certain way. And then also about the styling, like you said, you've got the leather jacket, but in this face, she's all about a sweetheart neckline and showing her shoulders, which is so of that period. And then also actually thinking about the music, you've got the James Cagney speech quote in White Heat. You know, it's it's so referential, but I, I never feel like, especially here, it's usurping or stealing. I feel like it's moving pushing the envelope as she loves to say forward just with with a nod to what had come and then the final thing about this photo it was all shot in black and white so this is a hand colorized version of the black and white photo i, I guess it sort of has a, an andy warhol type of inspiration if you look at the interview magazine covers as well that kind of stylized look and and it feels like a kind of technicolor americana 1950s film I think I actually prefer the black and white, the original black and white as an image, but I can see why it works so well as as a record cover with it being colorized. But, but maybe Peter can talk more about um, that, how it translates to the to the handwritten text as well, because that's so I've 50s. Actually, I've actually got a question for you that would be interesting to hear your answer to. I've read that it's actually the designer and uh, illustrator in-house who colorized it with mm. no, no permissions. I know that I'd have been shot for doing that. So I'm interested to know, like, it I, it, it was a real liberty, and to do it without his permission, I, I was quite shocked to find that out. So as a designer and an art director took it upon themselves to colourise an image. Mm. He, yeah. he'd, left, he'd left them with a black and white image. Well, I can't imagine Madonna would have not known about it or signed off in it. And I think I can imagine their friendship would mean it would probably give a little more leeway in terms of a creative decision being made without him. But I, I, And I can see that. I mean, there's definitely been circumstances I've been in where someone has made a decision without me and it is frustrating. However, if you're approaching it with the most egalitarian point of view, you just want the best creative artwork. I mean, you'll know this from, from work yeah. too. And so maybe he potentially was a bit miffed at first that it's it was out of his hands but it does work as the album cover so maybe maybe in the end it's, it is what it is because we think, don't know what the discussions might have been as well somebody might have said hey this is an album cover appe appealing to teen girls we cannot put a black and white image on it um, which seems crazy now but back in 1986 it may have been a, a, a valid reason who knows what those discussions it would were. have been her third black and white cover as well so i wonder if that played into it they suddenly went Oh, mm. oh no, we've we've done three in a row that black and white. So I think without that blue background, you don't get the name. True blue makes no sense. But somehow that little bit of blue tinted into the background. But I've just always been intrigued as to like when a photographer leaves a project and it's a black and white image to then see it 
on a shelf and it's it's very different i i would love to have known what he felt about that i think also you can see a madonna reference being the film la dolce vita you know there's a frame in the actual film in which the actress has her head tipped back with a waterfall in the background and and it has that real evocative you know romantic feeling which you know madonna what's so madonna's so brilliant at is combining all of these references into something new well, I mean, this is Madonna's In Love album as well. She dedicated it to Sean Penn mm-hmm. and the song True Blue is supposedly towards him. So that would make sense to reference that. There's such a crossover, as always, between the photography and the art direction and the graphic design. Peter, I have to bring you in here because uh, you've already touched on the fact that it had been heavily touched up and recolorized. There's a couple of versions of the album cover as well. It, it was, I think, a group decision or a group intention that she was going to just be a portrait and that there would be no graphic design or typography on top of it, which is an incredibly brave move for someone that is essentially at the peak of their career. But I, I do think that the label bottled out a little bit. So there were some versions that went out. And I think the original intention by the designer and the art director was for the actually to have a sticker. So it was actually removable which was a great way of solving two problems but yeah a lot of versions that went out internationally in the second pressing all had the madonna true blue at the top it turned it from i think a piece of iconic artwork into something a bit more mundane and a bit more editorial it was a bit of a shame because it's such a strong image but I, I understand labels get nervous, don't they? They want Madonna's name on it. And looking at it in context of like the kind of people that were her fans, we'd left what I would say was like quite a, a girl. And then boom, there was this woman and she was married and she was beautiful and the makeup was flawless. Gone was like the ragtag hair and the, she just looked pristine. So for a 11, 12, 13 year old, maybe you wouldn't recognize that as the amazing pop star that danced around to like a virgin and you wanted to bring that that fan group over so having her name on it it was this was her first chameleon moment really this was the where she earned that moniker it was like bang wow i i I remember not recognizing her not being able to comprehend that they were the same two women and i think for most kids my age that was like a real turning point that like you were like she can do two things at once wow and true blue i think that the iconicness of the image solidified that it was like she's up there with the best she's just created an album cover that is going to live for you you could you, you saw it the moment you saw the image it it was going to live for a long long time as you say it still gets referenced all the time it is a phenomenal image that probably isn't helped by putting the title on. But nonetheless, it's her biggest selling album of all time. And that yeah. has to be in part due to those of us that judge a book by a cover, I'm sure. <laughs> I think the, the the side of it that's quite interesting is like the, the team that were behind it. So it was a team that she would have sat down with and discussed. And the creative director that was behind it was a guy called Jeff Ayerhoff. I don't know if I've pronounced that right. Apologies if I haven't. But he has got quite a legacy of making amazing work. So he was the guy that was responsible for the AHA video that was presented to label and they said no. And he Mm. fought for it and got it made. He's also the guy who did the parade album cover with Prince. So I think you can see his want to create something iconic for this. And then the other lady that was involved again with 
the, the two previous ones was Jerry Hyden again. And it's actually a little bit of a myth um, that she broke a few years ago, but it's not actually Madonna's handwriting. So for many, many years, everyone's just assumed that it's Madonna's handwriting. It, it isn't. It's actually Jerry Hyden's. So she did all of the line and notes. She did all of the song titles on everything. And it's absolutely beautiful. And back in that time, it sounds so easy now, but you would just take a photograph of your phone and scan it in. If you created a piece of typography on a piece of paper, getting that onto an album cover was incredibly difficult. So to actually come up with that idea and to make it real, it, it was quite a feat of engineering for 1985, 86. And I, th I think they did it beautifully. It's, I think that's why the album Inner Sleeve is so simple because you'd had such an incredible image on the cover that the liner notes and the, the bits that you got inside were just beautifully typeset and really, really clean. And I think that started to show like a little bit more of a grown-up side to like the, the album look and feel. But the only thing that I still am amazed at that they managed to make Times New Roman, which is the ubiquitous font that everyone uses for a document, but that's what the name's set in. And I, I think that they've done a really good job of like playing off the two fonts and it, 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 it really works. And she carried it through the whole campaign, which I think this was the first time that she like was able to see the branding roll out and make sense. So like things like the uh, photos that Herb took, they were consistent through most of the covers. The only one that differed was the uh, one for Open Your Heart, which again, great synthesis. They managed to get a still from the music video but it was still tinted blue. You still felt like it had that feel of the, the rest of the campaign. But yeah, I think it's, she managed to take one solid idea and run it through the whole campaign. And it, it's really, really beautiful to see like the, the effort and the typography that went into those final singles. What is striking when you're shooting is the difference between someone who has a photogenic face, actually a photogenic face. So in real life, someone could look quite ordinary. And then when you photograph them, something about the angles of the face just look incredible. And I think Madonna is one of those people, also testament to the fact that she can look so different in different styles, different lighting, different aesthetics, settings. So even in these herb shoots, there's a lot of images with the soft curls where the face looks quite round and soft where actually she could also be photographed in a couple of these angles with quite masculine features quite a big jaw but within that photo shoot they managed to cover a lot of ground and that that haircut was like the definition of the 80s it was the the zenith point of like everyone had gone from being backcomb big hair early 80s and all of a sudden, this pristine, steely white blonde. Every girl wanted that. Every woman wanted it. So it, the way that she presented it on the single sleeves, from being like very short and cropped and like a pixie cut, to then like quaffing it and making it into this like really beautiful like Marilyn look, it 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 really helped sort of sell the personality. And it was the first time that I think an artist had shown like a real range of image across like one campaign and I think the moment that defined it for me was when that black wig came off in Open Your Heart it's like oh my god she's done it again she's done it again she's got new hair new hair no no I haven't <laughs> could do a podcast on Madonna's hair you know I think I think there's a lot of interest and a lot to talk about but well, that's I, I, interesting you should say that because of course in Open Your Heart when she pulls the wig off she's pulling a shot by John Baptiste Mondino she's doing the same pose and that must be a deliberate reference to the True Blue cover 
what I love about this year as well, you know, 1986, she's obviously in such high demand and there are so many incredible magazine covers that she did in this year. And most of them are shot by her Brits, probably taken from the same shoot if not some additional ones. And seeing this contrast between a more masculine look to a more feminine, if listeners wanted to look up the December 1986 Vanity Fair cover, she's got very white hair, dark, dark lips, dark eyebrows. She looks in her more masculine phase. And then there's the Rolling Stone cover from the same year with a flower in her bosom where she looks very soft, very pretty. And, you know, they could potentially have been shot a couple of weeks apart. And she looks drastically different. And that's the magic of photography as well. So further reading, I know a lot of people like to go away and go down a, a YouTube or Wikipedia hole. Where would you advise them to go to carry on their enjoyment of True Blue? Well, Peter mentioned it. I think looking up the cover of the Papa Don't Preach single, it was also shot by Herb Ritz, but she looks quite different. It's the wet hair that you mentioned. And if you look at the black and white, which ended up being the British American cover, I think, versus the color images from that same shoot, it shows just such a, a drastic difference in what color versus black and white can be so in the black and white photos very high contrast her hair looks white but actually when you see the color images the hair the, the blonde is quite yellow and i think it works very well in black and white and she also looks just so youthful i feel like you could dress like that and look like that today and look contemporary and and cool and Another thing I wanted to mention was the recently released 35th anniversary edition in which they don't use this cover on the cover. You know, they use another herb shot from the same shoot, which is an interesting choice given that this is such an iconic cover, not just for Madonna, for any record cover of all time. It's always listed in the, in the best record covers of all time. I do like the photo, but what I think you can see in the new version is it's digitally tinted, not hand tinted. And there's something that's lost in that digital process that is not got the same softness. You know, it's color wise, it's a different blue, but also you just have a different feeling. A shoot from 1986 as well, which was when she was featured on the cover of Life magazine and shot by Bruce Weber, who is another legendary photographer. And she, she, I think she just looks at her most her most true blue in this shoot in a way you know she's photographed with her brothers and sisters which is a sort of precursor i guess to keep it together vibe and also the shoot feels quite italian i don't know if she was on tour maybe when she was shot i'm not 100 but it was used as the who's that girl tour imagery on the on the brochure the cover image i just love the way she looks and also the family life and she's shot collectively with other people which is just beautiful and also not a photographer but if anyone wanted to look up more from this time period she was on The Tonight Show in 1987. I think it was her first talk show appearance. I just think it, it just shows her personality. She's very relaxed. She's got great banter, you know, really can hit one-liners back with the host. And and the look she's got in that period is is so of this time. It's, it's the most sort of true blue also that she's looked in a public appearance. Mine's probably quite a short one, but it's quite interesting. I think Madonna had a relationship with a lot of the creators that she worked with, probably outside of like their, their work life. And the guy that I mentioned before, Jeff Eierhoff, quite interestingly, he founded Rock the Vote. So I would imagine that there was some conversation and something happened because several years later, she did a reversion for him of Vogue as a Rock the Vote uh, campaign mm. that was on every TV screen in America. So I think in terms of a man that was instrumental to like her development and her aesthetic, 
I think maybe like go up and uh, go and have a look at some of his other work because I think you can see a correlation between what he does. Like the Prince album cover is that's a, a full frontal photo, but it's phenomenal. And the one that he did with Brian Adams as well, it's you can sort of see a work in progress of the Madonna album cover. So yeah, but really worth a look out for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys. Uh, your insights are, are wonderful as ever. If you're listening to this podcast, um, do check out the work as we're talking about it. I, I kind of knew the Olivia Newton-John album, but I hadn't put two and two together, uh, and I've just been Googling it as the guys have been talking about it, and it's like, ah, right, yeah. Okay, that is where Herb got his idea from. Um, so to talk about other stuff now, and let's think about what could be on a reissue of True Blue. Well, as ever, there are a heap of remixes that have made their way onto various formats over the years, but there's some really exciting things that started happening around this era. Firstly, both Papa Don't Preach and Open Your Heart videos featured alternative edits of the songs. Not huge differences to the music that we're familiar with, but they're part of the whole sort of Madonna creative output from that period, so it would be really nice to have these on CD or on vinyl even for the first time. There's also some quite exciting remixes of the singles, including one of Madonna's best, I think, the extended version of Open Your Heart, which features extra vocals, including this one. Well... Are you going to go out with me or not? True Blue was radically remixed for the single and, in my opinion, much improved, though the album version was dubbed onto the video. But some of the other singles got remixes as well, including Open Your Heart and La Isla Benita. And they feel not massively different to what we're familiar with, but they are kind of, you know, much more radio-friendly, um, a bit more exciting sounding as well. So it would be great to have all those put together as well. And who knows, perhaps there are other remixes that were commissioned and not used or edits of familiar versions that you know we would love to hear for the first time when it comes to unreleased songs well we're now entering a period where madonna was recording much more material than was included on the final album working my fingers to the bone and pipeline are stephen bray tracks which we've never heard spotlight was also recorded for true blue um, but i'll be covering that in the next episode because it was eventually released on you can dance Stephen Bray has also confirmed the existence of another unreleased track, I Want You. Now, this isn't allegedly another version of the Marvin Gaye song, which Madonna would later cover with Massive Attack, but it's an original composition. Plus, there's also the songs Each Time You Break My Heart and Tell Me, which would end up being recorded by Nick Kamen. But there is, in the vaults, versions of these songs with Madonna on lead vocal. And we've heard a poor quality version of Each Time You Break My Heart. Again, there might well be some interesting demos of the songs that were released, and what we have heard is this. It's called Dance With Me and would end up being better known as Where's The Party? Patrick Leonard would end up sharing it on Instagram a few years ago. We've also heard this. It's a very interesting demo of Love Makes the World Go Round. It's not a million miles away from what was released, but there's a few interesting variations, especially in the melody and the lyrics. And I don't know about you, but I love hearing these tiny little differences that go into the song, as it tells the history of Madonna's songwriting process, which is why we're all here right now, I guess. Cause it's the easy thing to do You know that what I say 
Don't forget to check out the merch. There are some brilliant Inside the Groove t-shirts and mugs, heaps of different designs inspired by the history of Madonna and her musical collaborators. Brilliantly designed by Peter Falloon, aka The Bear, there are new ranges coming all the time. They're tasteful, clever and high quality, just like Madonna herself. Head over to www.insidethegroove.co.uk and click on merchandise. Thank you. And here's a quick note. Peter has done some fantastic new designs inspired by what we're talking about in this episode and the previous few episodes. If you want to get a special 10% discount, use the code MLVC40 just after you've heard this episode. Thank you. not only one of the best intros to a Madonna song, but one of the best intros to, well, anything really, including the True Blue album. And it might surprise you to know that's not a live orchestra, but it's keyboardist Fred Sarr playing the Emulator 2 Sambler, which Stephen Bray later said made the expensive piece of equipment worth the investment. The song was written by Brian Elliott, who had created it for a new artist called Christina Dent. He composed it at his studio after overhearing a conversation. The front window of his studios also doubled as a mirror, and he would often eavesdrop onto schoolgirls from the North Hollywood High School in Los Angeles who regularly stopped to fix their hair and chat. Warner's employees Michael Austin and Lenny Waranaka discovered the track and brought it to Madonna after convincing Brian that it would do very well being recorded by an established artist such as Madonna. She would make a few changes to the lyrics, earning herself a credit along the way, before recording it with Stephen Bray in his NoHo apartment in New York. He later said on Twitter that he had wished that she had made a less flashy appearance when she came around as all his neighbours were asking him if that was the Madonna and he had to say no, it was just a lookalike. He also explained that it was the maiden voyage of his QX sequencer, a Yamaha product which drove all the synths and the Lindrum machine. Bray thanked engineer Michael Verdick for his input and also of course Madonna for the outstanding vocal despite the fact that she had a cold on the day it was recorded. It was number one hit all over the world, including the UK, the US, Australia, Greece, Portugal and Canada. While the video, directed by James Foley, who had also worked with Madonna on Live to Tell, only helped to raise interest in her and the song, featuring a brazen new haircut and look, some incredible choreography and a story which further pushed the meaning of the controversial lyrics. This song is best summed up by Madonna when she spoke about it in 2009 to Rolling Stone magazine. She said... It just fits in with my own personal zeitgeist of standing up to male authorities, whether it's the Pope or the Catholic Church or my father and his conservative, patriarchal ways. For Papa Don't Preach, there were so many opinions. That's why I thought it was so great. And what a fantastic album it is. I hope you've enjoyed this journey. Tune in next time when we're going to be talking about the kind of accompaniment to True Blue, the album You Can Dance, Madonna's first remix album. And we've got lots to tell you about that, so something to look forward to. I'm going to play you out with an incredible remix I've recently heard. It's a fan-made remix of Open Your Heart, where Jason O'Dwyer, who's a really talented artist, has created an orchestral version of this fantastic song. I just couldn't resist adding it onto this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Speak to you soon. I'll follow you around, but you can't see. You're too wrapped up in yourself to notice. So you choose to 
Try.